As you may have guessed, uh, this evening we're going to review the meditations on seeing all sentient beings as our mother. And the next step is then to appreciate the kindness of all sentient beings and also to generate the wish to repay their kindness. And these three meditations build on the foundation of equanimity, which Venerable Semke reviewed last week. And they are the first four steps in a series of meditations that are called the seven-point cause and effect instruction. This series is meant to lead us to generate bodhicitta, the wish to become a fully awakened Buddha for the benefit of all beings. So all these meditations that we're doing these couple of weeks are meant to really expand our mind to help us to go beyond this small mind that's just, you know, obsessed with me, myself, I, mine, you know, or constantly caught up in what's appearing here and now. But to really try and go beyond that, to have this huge, expansive mind that can see that we're connected to all beings by kindness. And these are not easy meditations to do. Uh, I remember I first encountered this teaching in 2009 in Copan, and the teacher was saying, it's, it's harder to realize that all sentient beings are your mother than to realize emptiness. So like, okay, so you know, that kind of tells us where we can set our expectations when doing these meditations, to be patient with ourselves. And I think through the teachings we've had with venerable children, you can see all kinds of hindrances come up. Yeah, that small mind that just wants to be focused on me and how I see the world definitely comes up for us. So before we jump into the actual meditation, I just want to recap what Venerable Children laid out as the desired outcomes of meditating on the kindness of all our mother sentient beings, so that we have a clear sense of the kind of mental states we're trying to generate, so that any time during this meditation, if you find your mind's like moving in the opposite direction, you can say, you know, hold up, moving in the wrong direction, come back to you know, cultivating the sense of uh, expansiveness the sense of connectedness to beings. Yep, so that's the first uh, outcome. Really, why we are trying to uh, see all sentient beings as our mother, the purpose is to cultivate a sense of closeness to all sentient beings. Instead of seeing beings as distant and cut off, you know, over there, I'm here, totally unrelated, doesn't matter if I ignore you or harm you. Instead, we're trying to break down that kind of sense of disconnection and to see that we've been connected through countless lifetimes. And to appreciate the kindness of sentient beings, we take our mother as the starting point. Yeah. Why? Because um, you know, as a figure, it's quite easy to appreciate the kindness of the mother because she, bears, she carries us in her womb for nine months. She goes through the pain and struggle of childbirth. Um, in the animal realm, the mother lays the eggs, keeps them warm. And you know, typically, the mother puts, a lot, uh, puts more energy in the childbearing. But that is not to say that we disregard the efforts of the father. We have kind fathers here in the room, too. Um, so that's just a starting point. Yeah? Because we would not be alive at all without the kindness of our mother in this life. Just that physical act of carrying us to term, delivering us into this world, and caring for us through our helpless infant years. But really, what we want to do is to go beyond the appearance of this life, yeah, so we start with our, the kindness of our mother of this life, but we want to expand that to see that every sentient being has been kind to us in the same way. You know, it's a huge project, really. Um, and what that's going to help us do is to relax the kind of critical, judgmental mind that often comes up for us. You know, you see another being and you might immediately start picking faults, seeing their negativities or, you know, all kinds of judgment, the opinion factory just starts running, right? 
So instead, we're training ourselves to see, no, you know, they've been kind to us. Yeah, we're trying to appreciate all sentient beings in their beauty. And from there, we generate a wish to repay their kindness. So big, big states of mind that we're trying to move towards. And uh, anytime during this meditation, you feel your mind getting small, you know, that mind that's like, oh, there's no way this person could have been kind to me. Or you might get stuck on like, rebirth, what's that? You know, just relax, right? And just bring yourself back to this sense of um, appreciating the kindness of others. Yeah, that's what we're trying to move towards. So with that in mind, um, we'll take a few minutes to settle the mind, and then we'll do the abbreviated recitations that are on page 28 of the blue book. And then I'll guide us through the points uh, for first generating equanimity, then seeing sentient beings as your mother, appreciating their kindness, and then generating the wish to repay that kindness. So that's the roadmap that we're on for the next uh, half an hour or so. So take a moment to just check that you're seated comfortably with your spine straight. And you can check in with all the different parts of your body. If you feel any tension, just release it. And let's just enjoy our breath for a couple of minutes. Really appreciating that we're connected by our breath with every sentient being. All breathing the same air. And in the space in front of you, visualize Shakyamuni Buddha, his body made of brilliant light, looking upon you and all sentient beings with infinite love and compassion. He's surrounded by countless other holy beings, all the spiritual mentors, all the scriptures, Around us too, we connect with all sentient beings. We can imagine leading all beings and taking refuge. Namo Guru. 
sentient beings have happiness and its causes. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. Reverently, I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind and present clouds of every type of offering, actual and mentally transformed. I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginningless time, and rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. Please remain until cyclic existence ends, and turn the wheel of Dharma for sentient beings. I dedicate all the virtues of myself and others to the Great Awakening. This ground anointed with perfume, flower strewn Mount Meru, for land, sun, and moon, imagined as a Buddha land. 
offered to you. objects of attachment, aversion, and ignorance, friends, enemies, and strangers, my body, wealth, and enjoyments, I offer these without any sense of loss. Please accept them with pleasure and inspire me and others to be free from the three poisonous attitudes. Idam Guru Ratna Mandalakam And from the Buddha in the space in front of you, a small replica of the Buddha comes to the crown of your head, to the crowns of all sentient beings' heads. This miniature Buddha supplicates the entire lineage of spiritual mentors on our behalf. Glorious and precious root guru, sit upon the lotus and moon seat on my crown, guiding me with your great kindness, bestow upon me the attainments of your body, speech, and mind. The eyes through whom the vast scriptures are seen, supreme doors for the fortunate who would cross over to spiritual freedom, illuminators whose wise means vibrate with compassion, to the entire line of spiritual mentors I make requests. And as we recite the Buddha's mantra seven times, visualize that from the small Buddha above the crown of your head, brilliant light comes that flows down through your entire body, you can imagine white light that purifies you of all negativities or golden light that brings all the realizations of the stages of the path. Taya ta generating a mind of equanimity, this very balanced state of mind that's free of attachment, anger, and indifference. So start by thinking about how all sentient beings simply want to be happy and free of suffering. Whatever form they're born in, smallest of the small, from the biggest to the big, Every sentient being just wants to be happy and not to suffer. In this way, we are all exactly the same.
And then we see that all beings have the same fundamental wish. Why is it that we split them up into groups? Why do we say some of them are our friends and we help only that small group of people? Why do we call some our enemies, wishing to harm them? And why do we just tune out to the rest, being completely apathetic or indifferent to their situation? Knowing that all sentient beings have the same wish as I do, Let's try to see all beings as our friends, all of us moving in the same direction, wanting to be happy and not to suffer. And why do I say that all sentient beings have been my friend? Well, cyclic existence is beginningless. So it follows that we have had beginningless lives. So try and imagine that. Think about how you have been born in countless land, lands every possible place on this planet and beyond. I have had the body of every kind of sentient being. And in each of these lifetimes, I must have had a mother. So you could say we have had innumerable mothers in every single life going back into beginningless time.
and all my mothers from past lives will continue to be my mothers in the future as well. So there is no single sentient being who has not been my mother. We have a beginningless connection based on kindness with all sentient beings. Now bring to mind the mother that you have you have in this life. And think of her appearing to you as an old person. Think my mother in this life has been my mother in countless past lives. She has been my mother since beginningless time. In every life she went through the difficulty of being pregnant, the discomfort of childbirth, or birth in other forms. Think about all the things that your mother did this life to help you survive. And you were completely helpless as an infant. She made sure that you got an education you skills to survive in this world. And even if she couldn't, she might have arranged for someone else to do this. So you can also bring to mind a caregiver who was very close to you. just really appreciate that without their kindness you would not be alive today.
if any negative thoughts arise, you know, maybe you had some difficulties with your mother of this life, you can think, this is my past karma ripening. My mother did her best, given her circumstances. She did everything within her capacity to care for me. Her kindness to me has been boundless. Now think of your father and others whom you are quite close to. And think in my past life since beginningless time, they too have been my mother countless times. Just as my mother of this life cared for me, so too did they care for me. Their kindness to me is boundless. Now bring to mind a group of neutral sentient beings. You might think, there's no close connection between them and me at all. But really in my past lives, since beginningless time, they have been my mother countless times. Just as my mother of this life cared for me, so too did they care for me. Their kindness to me is boundless.
Now think of people that you don't like, whom you don't want to be around, who you think has harmed you, and ask yourself, what is the point of seeing them as my enemies? In my past life since beginningless time, they were my mother countless times. When they were my mother, they protected me. They obtained all kinds of benefits for me. I couldn't even bear to be separated from them for a little brief moment of time. We have been so close countless times. And right now, if we are in a difficult relationship, this is because of our past destructive karma. At so many other times, they have been my kind mother. Really feel that you are the recipient of love and kindness from each and every sentient being when they were your mother in previous lives. And when we're open to the kindness of others, naturally we want to repay that kindness. So just look at the situation that all our mothers are in right now. They're overwhelmed by afflictive states of mind. They might be in great confusion and pain or completely lost, chasing after sense pleasures. They might not have a spiritual practice. They don't have any teacher to guide them. 
So they have no idea what's beneficial to practice, what's harmful for themselves in the short and the long run. So every single moment they're creating actions that might cause themselves and others incredible suffering. And they have no idea. So seeing this, how can we abandon them? It's like they're at the edge of a cliff, about to fall into destruction, self-harm. We have to do what we can to help them to find the right path. So to repay their kindness, we generate the wish to free them, to free all our mothers from the misery of cyclic existence and to establish them in the joy of liberation. Remembering the Buddha above the crown of our head, we can make a sincere request for the teachings and inspiration to be able to do this for the sake of all sentient beings. So visualize in response to your requesting the Guru Buddha five colored light and nectar streams from all parts of his body into you through the crown of your head. It absorbs into your mind and body and those of all sentient beings. It purifies you of all negativities and obstructions accumulated since beginningless time and especially purifies all illnesses, spirit interferences, negativities and obstructions that interfere with your wish to free sentient beings from suffering and to establish them in the joy of liberation. Your body becomes translucent, the nature of light. All your good qualities, lifespan, merit, and so forth expand and increase. Think in particular that a superior realization of the wish to free all mother sentient beings from the misery of cyclic existence and to establish them in the joy of liberation has arisen in your mind stream and in the mind streams of others.
So when Venerable Children taught on this topic, uh, one of the first responses that came up for many people was how difficult it is to see people who perpetuate uh, hatred and atrocities as being our mother. And definitely that's a huge challenge for me when I work with this meditation. So uh, for a start, I'd like to share a story that I read online that really speaks to this topic and it helped me a lot in working with this mind. And I think it brings out some of the other points that Venerable Children made on this meditation as well. So um, I'll share the story and then we can discuss what comes up from hearing it. And it's a story from a website called The Forgiveness Project. It was started by a journalist uh, after the Iraq war in 2004. And on this website are stories of people who have been through unimaginable kinds of suffering, you know, f from the massacre of family members, uh, being forced to be a child soldier. But all of them share about how they work with their anger and how they've chosen to forgive. That's been a big part of their healing process and moving on. So this evening I'd like to share with you the story of a man named Arno Michaelis. Um, it starts with his biography and then I'll read his words. So from the age of 17, Arno Michaelis was deeply involved in the white power movement. He was a founding member of what became the largest racist skinhead organization in the world, a reverend of self-declared racial holy war and lead singer of the race metal band Centurion, selling over 20,000 CDs to racists around the world. Today he is a speaker, author of My Life After Hate, and works with Serve to Unite, an organization that engages young people of all backgrounds as peacemakers. So here's his essay. I grew up in an alcoholic household where emotional violence was the norm, and as a kid who was told I could achieve anything, I reacted to the emotional violence by lashing out and hurting people. I started out as the bully on the school bus, and by the time I was in middle school, I was committing serious acts of vandalism. As a teenager, I got into the punk rock scene, which for a while was the ultimate outlet for my aggression. But like any other addiction, my thrill-seeking needed constant cranking up. So when I encountered racist skinheads, I knew I'd found something far more effective. I joined up for the kicks and to make people angry. I was also enamored with the idea of being a warrior. And as a skinhead, here at last was my chance to be a warrior for a magnificent cause, to save the white race. I truly believed white people were under the threat of genocide at the hands of some shadowy Jewish conspiracy. It made total sense to me, probably because nothing else in my world was making sense. So I assumed an identity where all that mattered was the color of my skin. I remember one Thanksgiving dinner when I was very vehemently and drunkenly spouting off my views. My mother said to me, Well, Mr. Nazi, did you know that you are one sixteenth Indian? That completely shut me up right there and then. But later that night, I went back to my own house and continued to drink beer out of glass bottles until I broke a bottle and slipped my wrist with it. That's how convinced I was that my racial identity was all that I had. Once I'd stepped down this path, violence became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the more violence and hatred that I put into the world, the more the world gave it back to me, which of course only further validated all my paranoia and conspiracy theories. I wallowed in violence as a means of self-destruction and stimulation, using white power ideology as justification and profuse alcohol abuse as a spiritual anesthetic. I practiced violence until it seemed natural, becoming very proficient in aggression. With my bare hands, I beat other human beings to the point of hospitalization over the color of their skin, 
their sexuality, or simply just for the adrenaline rush. Kids trying to emulate me did much worse. I radiated hostility, especially towards anyone with a darker skin complexion than mine, and I had a swastika tattooed on the middle finger of my right hand. One time, I was greeted by a black lady at a McDonald's cash register with a smile as warm and unconditional as the sun. When she noticed the swastika tattoo on my finger, she said, You're a better person than that. I know that's not who you are. Powerless against such compassion, I fled from her steady smile and authentic presence, never to return to that McDonald's again. It wasn't until I became a single parent at age 24 that I began to distance myself from the movement. I'd lost a number of friends to either prison or a violent death by now, and it started to occur to me that if I didn't change my ways, then street violence would take me from my daughter too. And once I began to distance myself from the constant reinforcement of violence and hatred, suddenly it began to make much less sense to me. At the same time, I began to feel I had an identity of my own. And so for the first time, I allowed myself to listen to whatever music I wanted to listen to and watch whatever TV shows I wanted to watch, not just what had been approved by the white power movement. Soon I got immersed in the rave scene, which couldn't have been more different from the skinhead scene. <laughs> While there was still a lot of drug use and irresponsible behavior, there was also a lot of forgiveness. I was embraced and accepted by people whom formerly I would have attacked on sight. And that was a very powerful thing for me. But it took me a long time to work through my feelings of guilt and remorse for all the harm that I'd caused. I'd effectively been on a 10-year bender, but once I quit drinking in 2004, I felt the need to make a really positive impact and speak out publicly against racism and hatred. In 2007, I began writing a reflective memoir and co-founded the online magazine Life After Hate. When I was younger, I thought I had created my challenge by declaring war on the world. But I've come to realize that responding to aggression with compassion is much, much more difficult than to respond to it with anger and violence. Forgiveness is a sublime example of humanity that I explore at every opportunity because it was the unconditional forgiveness I was given by people whom I once claimed to hate that demonstrated for me the way from there to here. It's just one of the many, many stories on this website that are all quite powerful testimonies. So before I tell you what I think, <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you know might have come up for people from, I don't know, hearing this reflection or doing the meditation. this turning point after having such strong um, sympathy for all kinds of antipathy mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because he joined such strong movements and was so convinced obviously over many years and I couldn't really get besides the woman McDonald's but what was really um, yeah I watched him speak in a video today I think he was saying it was three things that really helped him to turn his mind. And the first was exhaustion. Oh. Is it just seeing that violence takes effort? And I guess that's what struck me. You know, you think, I think for me, this story helped me to shift this idea of people as inherently violent 
I mean, you know, I know it here, but when I see someone do something race, like I consider racist, or it's like, bad, how could you say that? But he was saying, you no, know, he's practiced violence, it became his way of life, and he said it just took so much effort and exhaustion. He finally saw what a drain it was on his life. So that was one big piece. And he said it was also um, the love he received from his family. He said his parents never gave up, gave up on him. No matter how horrible his he was, his parents said, you know, the door is always open. We still love you. And yeah. And then he said the third part was um, connecting with people who he was trying to attack or that he was uh, directed his hatred towards and seeing how they saw him as a human being. I think that was the big turning point for him. And I think that's, for me, that's what the story about uh, the woman at McDonald's does for me. Mm -hmm. right? She saw him as a human being. And he said that was a profound <laughs> moment that he was being seen just for who he, as a human being without the race, the, you know, all that sort of stuff and being appreciated for that. Yeah, so those were the three things he said started to turn his mind. And especially too, because he was a parent. And there was another story on this website too about someone else from similar movements and he said, you know, one day his sons were saying something racist and at first he felt proud and then he said, he thought, wait, you know, if they're conditioned like this, what are they going to grow up to be like? And for the first time he thought, I'm not proud to pass this legacy on to my children. And that's when he said, okay, I need to rethink the way I'm thinking and living my life. Yeah. So. <laughs> So yeah, I, I don't know, it's the kind of kindness of parents, I think, that for the first time you put another being before, in, above yourself and you start to think really long term, like what kind of legacy am I leaving for my kids? And I think too, it's just um, him getting in touch with that, with all this effort and all this energy, there was no, I mean, changing the world into an all-white supremacy world. I mean, it just, can't, it just can't happen. It's almost like the result that he was looking for wasn't going to happen. Instead, what he was getting was exhaustion, was getting um, probably isolation, uh, not feeling good about himself. It, it didn't seem like for all the energy that he was putting into this ideology, it didn't, there was nothing underneath it to base the reality of it in, and so it was just a continual perpetuating of his own mind. Maybe a few people came on, maybe he converted a few people by his madness. But you know, after a while the human the human heart can't sustain itself. I mean and, and it sounded like he was smart enough to recognize that there was something not real about what he was advocating. Mm. You know, and, and it also sounded like he was doing just a lot of um, um, I don't know. It sounded like he, he had he came he came into this life with some sort of attitude. You know, stories like this really show me that there's a lot coming in. Mm -hmm. There's not a blank slate when a child is born, and having this loving family, his predisposition was still so antithetical to what his parents tried to, get to, to place instill in him. And also it really gives me quite a sense that there was a lot more on his plate in his mind before the day he was born. Mm. You know, now he doesn't have that in his context, but it helps me right. to understand why a child like that would have such a uh, predisposition for something that didn't seem to have any causes in this life. You know, and somewhere along the line that that negative karma sounds like it sort of ran itself out. 
and instead what came up is maybe something under there that was a little bit kinder, a little bit more realistic. It seemed like you had quite a dichotomy going on there. Yeah, that was what resonated with me with this story too, I guess. It helped me see, Venerable kept making the point that um, sentient beings are not inherently evil, that the problems of humanity are caused by ignorance and anger. And you could see, wow, it's really just this complete ignorance, thinking that you're doing something beneficial when it's totally not. And the pain of completely believing that, I think. Yeah, so that helped me to loosen up this idea too, that someone could be just... You know, motivated purely by hatred. If you watch uh, very young children playing with each other, and you put a white child, an African American, an Asian child together, they play equally, and you know there's there's interaction, there's no hatred. Uh, it's only like later on as they grow up and learn that hatred. Uh, so one wonders how much of that is. Is it karma or is it just being taught uh, to hate by parents and you know other, other people that they're, they're associated with? But very young children don't manifest that hatred. They don't see color. Mm. I think in the discussion with Venerable, she was saying that um, we have the seed of anger, or we might even have the past disposition to direct hate towards a whole group of people. But the way it manifests in a particular lifetime depends on the conditions as well, right? that ripen together with that seed of anger. Yeah, so I guess it works together. Because it didn't sound like he, 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 was, he, learned it on his, he was learning it on his own, but it didn't sound like his family was instilling that in him. Yeah. Yeah. So he was getting it from some kind of education base. Right. Know, but he was heading to, he was, he had a predisposition to look into things that were exciting and violent and, mm. you know, more racist. But it seemed to, you know, a little bit of what Ken said. Mm. It seemed also to be only driven by how he was thinking, how he habituated himself to things mm. so in the beginning, right? And then making decisions accordingly. And then later when he switched his thoughts to a totally opposite side, though, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that was a big point that came up in the discussions too. Um, yeah, that really it's just how we choose to see the world, <laughs> right? That Venable kept saying, um, you know, we can make ourselves miserable by focusing on the negative things that appear to us, right? Someone's actions uh, or picking on their skin color, you know, or we can focus on their kindness, yeah, everything they've done to benefit us. I like, she asked this question, do you want to have a peaceful mind or do you want to stay in a cesspool of negative emotion? <laughs> it's like, hmm, okay. Tough, tough, tough choice there. So, but yeah, it's so hard to pull ourselves out of that, you know, stink pit <laughs> when you get yourself in there, right? Fixated on the negativities of someone or something. Yeah. I think that this guy, too, it reminds me of what she's been talking about a lot lately, that, that we've seen that people want to be affiliated with something bigger than themselves, mm. right? So there's a big movement, and you're a part of something. And, and, and also, what it kind of resonates for me, because I've been preparing for this weekend, is looking back again at all of His Holiness's um, arguments for how, how human beings are actually attracted to kindness. Mm. So that no matter how hard this guy was trying, 
and, and was quite successful in making his life about hate. The kindness got through, and that little beam, however many times, that's what he was really, really attracted to in his, really, in his heart. Yeah. You know, so it kind of reinforces that capacity we have for compassion. And having the child, and having the parents who never closed the door, and having that woman look at him in that way with these little places to get that beam of light out to sort of, you know, invite it out because you can't hold it back. Huh, it's almost like the opposite movement, right? It's like we are already part of something bigger. It's like why don't we wake up to that every day, right? It's like, oh, we are connected. Yeah. I really like that story about the woman at McDonald's. Like that's kind of my mantra. You, know, you can say this to yourself when you're afflicted. You are a better person than this. <laughs> I know that's not what you are. <laughs> I'm not my anger. Yeah. Yeah, thinking of him when he was in the throes of his, his white supremacist life, it would be difficult to think of him as my mother. <laughs> but when he turned the corner and became you know, the person that he is when he's writing this, this memoir, then that's easier to think of him as your mother, right? So it's, it's um, but he's the same person, really. He's just manifesting in different ways. So I just, you know. Yeah. I thought, it's, and it's remarkable that that lady could see through the hostility, like, and just say, you know, I'm not going to buy into this thing you're trying to put on me. You are a better person than that. <laughs> like, yeah, that she could. Um, so that reminded me of the point Venerable was making about how um, this meditation ties in with the meditation on emptiness. We're trying to see beyond the appearance of sentient beings in this life. Like, they look hostile or whatever, but at heart, right, all sentient beings just want to be happy and to avoid suffering. They're kind at heart. There's the Buddha nature. There's transformation is possible. And she was saying a big hindrance to seeing enemies as our mother is the appearance is so strong and we just cling to it like no can't be or this is the person I care about this is my enemy and then you know you can't your mind just gets stuck yeah. I don't know doing this meditation always see, helps me see what I'm at, who and what I'm attached to and beings that I feel aversion towards that's where my mind just can't my mother no nope no <laughs> stuck 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 Sorry, Venerable Sultrum has wanted to share an online comment for a while. It says um, about the lady in McDonald's, how cool that the little gifts we give to others that might seem inconsequential are the very things that people remember that might help them to turn their mind years later. Mm. 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 Yeah, sometimes like, we try to see, but we don't see the result, but that doesn't mean the results don't count. Mm-hmm. Also a reminder, and I don't know other people have this in their background, but to look back and see <laughs> where I have been, <laughs> who I have been, and the continuity, you know, goes on. Things change, people change. Yeah, all the wrong all views. Yeah. yeah, all the wrong views, all the terrible behavior. Judging people based on your taste in music, yeah, <laughs> ridiculous, <laughs> you know, opinions that didn't matter, yeah. Yeah, I, I honestly have to say, like, like as sad as it is to 
say this, um, I could really like relate to that guy's story because I used to be that guy actually. I mean, the only difference was I didn't really have any uh, thing to identify with in terms of a hate group, but I was a really angry violent guy. I really was. I mean, like, I hate to say that, but it's the truth. But like, I mean, the, but again, you know, like, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound like some corny testimonial, but really it's because of the path of Dharma that gave me the antidotes. I mean, it took a long time, but like, I just look back sometimes now and I go, like, who was that guy? You know, really, it's like that profound. Like, I, it's, I had so much anger in me. I can't say when or how the shift happened, but it just did over time, you know. And, um, I don't know, it's just pretty, yeah, I could really, I could feel, you know, compassion for that guy because I know what it was to suffer with that kind of anger, mm -hmm. that kind of anger, you know. And then, of course, I still have anger, but not to that level, like, that it was just something I was walking around with every day, you know what I mean? So, like, yeah, it's not worth doing, but when I look back for 15 years, I'm like, I see a big difference, you know. We can rejoice that we are not truly existent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank goodness for impermanence, change, causes, and conditions. Yeah, that keep changing. And to what you were saying, that there's a whole process of making peace with the past. I think, and that point came up too in the discussions. Um, and where Venerable said, you know, a big hindrance that often comes up in this meditation is this whole thing of what my mother did to me, or my family was, nah, that's another ditch that's easy to fall into. And she was saying a big part of our spiritual practice is making peace with the past, to see, okay, causes and conditions came up, and I can change, and people change, they've done their best. Yeah. So that's why I appreciate that about his story too. I mean, he doesn't blame anyone. He says, you know, I had to work with my guilt and remorse for many years, and somehow I was embraced and accepted by people. In that video I watched this morning too, he said that's one thing that really moved him, that people just embraced him when he wanted to change. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this? Um, yeah. It, one of the difficulties, obviously, with um, looking at someone we consider an enemy, especially someone that might be violent or doing acts that we consider heinous. Is to is that we is that we see them as inherently that, but I think part of it too is that we actively it's like we want to distance ourselves from that person because of we don't sometimes we don't want to be associated with that and that it's like we want it's a yeah, it's a fear and it's, um, it's an attachment to seeing ourselves. Huh. And so, I think it's helpful to remember that many, we've had so many lives that we've been, we have been members of each of us have been like that. We mm -hmm. have caught, we've done everything in some sort of And I don't know. I'm expressing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So shaking up our view of how oh I'm good, that person's bad and you think you, you dissociate because you're afraid. Yeah. There was one really powerful story in this forgiveness project uh, stories too where I think this mother her child was murdered 
And she felt this incredible rage, you know. And through that whole process, she saw, actually, I have the same mind as the person who killed my child. When she got in touch with that rage, she was ready to... She testified against the murderer. She wanted the death penalty. She was all about seeing justice done. But when she really looked at that rage, she saw, I'm no different from this person who I hate so much. And that was a turning point for her to see, huh, yeah. There were many stories, too, of people who met with the perpetrator of the crime and made, be, and connected with them and mm, forgave or you know made amends, which were quite amazing. Yeah. And very difficult for the perpetrators, too, to come face to face with the consequences or the people who are living the consequence. I didn't really hear that in his story. I have to say, I'm sitting here not so uh, forgiving of this thing. Uh-huh. I, I, uh, I, didn't, I find the whole thing kind of self-centered. Mm. In uh, what way? I turn around a little bit. I, don't, I never heard anything that talked about anyone else but himself all mm. the way through. You know, As in? Like, I had all this remorse. He was mainly sharing his in, inner yeah, process. process. Yeah, because what struck me too. So later, I went and did some research on this organization that he helped to start with people called Serve to Unite, and I was quite surprised because uh, I don't know where he lives, but it came out of this organization came out of the shooting of six people at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin in 2012. So um, yeah, apparently, a, they call, a white supremacist went and shot six people, including the president of the temple. And so this man, Arno. Um, I don't know how he got connected with the temple, but he, um, the sons of the president of the Sikh temple, his nephew and his godson, and Arno, have formed this organization called Serve to Unite, sort of as a way to bridge that, you know, to heal after the shooting at the temple. And the main work that they do is to go into high schools and teach courses on uh, overcoming prejudice and bigotry, and so they partner with many, many schools. So it must be very powerful for him and the son of the president of the Sikh temple, the two of them often run workshops together, so they'll go in and talk from both sides, you know, as a perpetrator and someone who has suffered from that kind of violence, and often working with kids in gangs. Yeah. So I was quite uh, touched yeah, that this organization came out, and they organized runs and events to just keep the awareness going in the community. I think it's a... I think it's a um I think that him getting, getting in touch with his own, having some compassion for his own deluded, crazy mind, I don't think he would ever be able to do what he's doing now if he weren't to be able to come to terms with his behavior and what he did. I think that, I think before, I mean, that's part of what I've been thinking about for this weekend too, is that we can't, we can't give ourselves to the world, especially if we've done such abominable things like this unless we kind of come back around and, and befriend ourselves in a mm. way that that takes responsibility and then goes on from there. But for him to try to jump over that stage of going from being a racist to trying to help other people without going through this process of forgiving himself, I don't think that's possible. So I, I maybe it is a little bit self-centered, but it sounds like it's a lot of... Um, 
some, some self-acceptance and some self-understanding and some transformation that has to take place on the inside so deeply that there's really no other place for him to talk from because he doesn't know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that would have been a little the same, so self-absorbed within his own cause. But when he changed to having some insight about what he had done, I think that process is an eternal process. And then from there, the fact that he's got these organizations now means that he has stepped out of himself Mm-hmm. in a different way. I think he had to go through that self-love and that self-forgiveness first before he can really do the, the, the caring for others in the way that he's doing now. I, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't happen to see it like that. There's a lot about this befriending. And being open to others' kindness, maybe? Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's like, um, like, you know, if you're surrounded by people who are kind and who love you, but you can't let that in, or somehow you're just not seeing what they see in you. I mean, we've all had that experience. It's just a strange state of mind. Yes. Lately, I've been having a, um, an unusual friends, enemies, and strangers experience. I've been uh, volunteering at the, one of the Spokane animal shelters, uh-huh. and um, uh, you know, walking dogs and socializing with them. And so I'll go into the kennels, and um, you know, I'll see a little chihuahua, and. Well, that's that's a that's a friend right away. They intrigue take me for a walk, but then they also have 150 pound pit bulls, and um, um, immediately you know my th- that pit bull is is kind of the enemy, okay, and but it's the enemy because of fear. You know, I'm afraid that that mm-hmm. pit bull is going to take my face off when I go in the cage. So, um, but I, I find that if I can get over that fear and walk in the cage, and, and they're screened, they don't let volunteers, you know, go into the cage with a pit bull unless it's a very friendly pit bull. Um, when I get up the courage to do that and go in the cage, I find that that 150-pound pit bull is no different than that little chihuahua. I just want, you know, some kindness, some love, a treat, and, you know, a hug, and um, and then I take them out and take them for a walk, or they take me for a walk. Um, but I, I find that the, the enemy uh, in my mind is, the underlying reason for that is fear. Mm-hmm. And um, so, these are sentient beings, uh, not human, but uh, you know, all they want is, is love and kindness, and uh, and I'm convinced, as a result of my experience, that you know these dogs, like uh, you know pit bulls and uh, Rottweilers, you know, that have a bad reputation. I, I don't really think that there are any really bad dogs. I think there's bad dog owners, you know, that, uh, that don't treat them properly with kindness and uh, they all all mm. the dogs uh, can be good dogs if they're if they're treated with kindness so they just want kindness and and I realized that my portraying them as an enemy is due to fear and I think that you know we also um, have that problem that uh, you know these white supremacists are operating from the standpoint of fear mm. And that's what engenders that, that hatred. Yeah, I think for me it's hard to, I mean, been around some of us, 
Mm -hmm. I, it makes me think of when I was trying to raise my nephew and immerse myself in his world when he was a teenager. And I saw these movies he would watch, Fight Club, and these the amount of violence they were on. And I saw, you know, I mean, it's for me, it's quite vivid. You know, this guy's probably smashing people with skateboards, and mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the amount of damage that's been done to other people. I guess. So somehow that got, I don't know what happened. Just don't get caught. He didn't get caught or he didn't do enough to warrant it or... Well, he said he was 24 when he has his little child. So he was still quite young. Mm -hmm. mm. It's a kind of wrong view, or yeah. the suffering of change, <laughs> right? Like you think this thing is pleasure, and yeah. but you repeat, 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 and it's you know. So it could be an angry state of mind that somehow is giving you a thrill, right? Mm -hmm. And which is not too different from the desire state of mind that's you know you repeat, repeat to the point where at some point you see, hey, <laughs> this is not beneficial to myself or others really at all. You're angry. Mind you're, you're violent to towards the people who are making you angry. Um, it gives you some relief, and I think if you do it over and over again in your mind, you actually start to do it. Mm. Um, especially if you're around a group of people who are supporting you in that, mm. it gets really sucked into that. Right. So we come back to this thing about conditioning and habituation yeah. and bad friends. Yeah, yeah. And bad friends. So I, yeah, that was one big thing too that came up. Well, at least with these meditations, that no matter what resistance might come up or how hard it is to get to the cushion, it's the same thing, right? It's just about practice. We habituate ourselves to kindness in the same way where it takes effort to practice violence. You know, it, and it also takes effort to practice kindness. And it's just a choice that we make. It's not about easy or difficult. Or, you know, it's where we choose to put our mind every moment. Yeah, that we have that ch choice to see someone in in terms of kindness or in terms of um, yeah hatred or wanting to harm. Were there any other points online? Um, it seems like aggression, like attachment, um, it, it may feel like I'm being 
of relief at the moment or a release to uh, indulge it. But when you feed in affliction, it grows. And so it makes it where you're less likely to get out of it now. And two, yeah, I guess that comes to the point about repaying the kindness of others, maybe, that we're helping, you know, the end of that meditation, where we see that all sentient beings are afflicted or overcome by states of mind like that, confusing attachment with pleasure, confusing anger with pleasure, and just repeating that kind of behavior. And how our work to repay the kindness of others is helping them to break that cycle or helping ourselves first to break that cycle and how that that's a huge challenge yeah one big point that stuck out for me uh, in the teachings was venerable saying that repaying the kindness of others is not about trying to do what others want us to do which is my mo basically you know being a people pleaser giving them what they want yeah, going along with their possibly afflicted state of mind and we have to have that inner strength to say no this is not beneficial for you or me or you know, to break that cycle of indulging in our afflictions. And sometimes I think we get pushback, right, from people who are like, why are you taking this away from me? Or the frustration that we're judging them, or moral high horse, blah, blah, and all that. Yeah. I, w- I wonder what role, like, gender plays in this, because, like, I can't think of, like, you know, I mean, I think about what Sean was saying, and it's still true, like, you know, as a man, it's, okay. it, it, it's in some ways it's socially acceptable to be angry in certain contexts, you know, especially sports or whatever, and, and it's considered weak or soft to be compassionate. And I can't, you know, I can't think of a, um, you know, like a female figure in that sense of an angry Nazi. You know, maybe there are, but I just think, like, this, these roles that, you know, um, you know, just... The, the thing of being a male in America and then the, the thing about anger and how it's like so easily, uh, it's just a, you know, there's so much, it's just, it's hard then in that way to, to, for people to step outside of those roles and those expectations and like go over how much of a role that played. Maybe it conditions the way the anger manifests itself. Like, you know, as a woman, you're just not going to pick up a chair and throw it, but it'll come out in yeah. other ways. Oh, you might. Yeah. <laughs> or, okay. <laughs> or you just turn it inward and just get, you know, have yeah. all sorts of problems with, you know, self-hatred in another way. Who's the woman who is the vice presidential candidate with John McCain? Sarah Like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Slaughtering wolves. Paying bounty on wolves. Yeah. But anger and fear, anger and fear. Just your sharing is reminding me of how I remember at college we were re, we were struck with this figure of um a, I think she was a nun in Rwanda called Maria Kazito, who was helping uh, apparently har- helping to harbor re- uh, refugees in the in the church. But then she turns them over to the people who are looking for them, and and yeah, and all these people get killed. Yeah. So one of my professors flew to her trial in Belgium to find out what was going on in this person's mind. What was going on? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of uh, fear, self-interest, self-protection, mm-hmm. you know, protect yourself at the cost of all these other people's lives. Yeah, I think his, his interest, I mean, he was just like, how do you reconcile that with your faith, right? Yeah. So I think, yeah, the human mind, complex, <laughs> difficult.
So thank you very much for all your views um, and responding to, I guess, a difficult topic and sitting with these meditations. I guess if there's one thing uh, that I took away from all this is um, just remembering that you know we're all products of conditioning, causes and conditions, right? That um, kindness is all around us and we can condition ourselves to really try and see it in every single being and that benefits us tremendously and helps us to benefit others. Um, I'll close with the story of how, I, I really love the story of how the Buddha taught generosity to a miserly woman. Right? He told her, just give the carrot from your left hand to your right hand and give it from your right hand to your left hand. And that's where it starts. Right? It's not about like kindness of all sentient beings now. <laughs> it's like every day, one good quality about someone I live with, which is what Venerable Trini was talking about in the BBC. Let's start there. Left hand, right hand right hand, left hand, and have faith that we create the causes that way, right? Long-term effect. That's where great generosity begins, like this, <laughs> left to right. So, uh, yeah, next week we will continue with uh, cultivating love and compassion. Once we see all the beings in uh, their kindness, that opens the door for that to be possible. So, uh, we can dissolve the Buddha above the crown of our heads. <laughs> And the Buddha absorbs into our hearts. And we can send out this light from our hearts to all sentient beings, especially those we know are in very tormented, difficult states of mind, wishing them to be free from suffering and to find a true path of happiness. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzin Gyatso Chenrezi, may you stay until samsara ends. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path, and all spiritual friends who practice it, have long life. May I pacify completely all Princess, grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable, and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Losan's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Supreme Spiritual Leader, Omniscient King of the Shakyas, Motherly Tara, Supreme Bestower of Longevity and Wisdom, Vast Ocean Assembly of Sources of Refuge, Grant propitiousness here and now for a nectar of benefit and bliss to flow. 
With a clear mind of extensive learning gained from following the wondrous traditions of Tukten, the Able One's teachings, you bring clarity the masses of disciples with the light of children, the lamp of the Dharma. May your lotus feet remain unfaltering for a very long time. Through your dharmic deeds of hearing, thinking, meditating, and so on, place those who seek the liberated path in harmony through immaculate discipline. Please lead all beings to liberation with undeclining excellent qualities of scripture and insight and establish them in the glory of eternal bliss. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders who spread the view of dependent arising and non-violent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West, Blue.